Today's reading is from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Christina. Well, uh, it's been said a couple times, but good morning again, guys. Uh, my name is Sean. If I don't know you, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be in the lobby afterwards uh, to, to say hi. If you've been coming for a couple months now or you're new, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'm the primary guy who will be teaching up here regularly. Um, so at least come up and say hi. I don't have a weird party to invite you to, but you can at least come say hi to, to me. Um, so uh, real quick, um, he, John had explained a little bit already who we are. Let me just kind of walk us through some semantics, if you're new to redemption, um, of how we operate. So on Sunday mornings, um, it's really important and great. It would be good for you to know that um, every single week, we're going to do our best to take the Bible and go through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That's something we really believe um, at our core is the best way to understand the scriptures. So um, we, we, from the ethos of uh, even Redemption Peoria, we started by going through the entire book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And um, we'll have some weeks where we kind of do separate things like Advent and d- different things like that. But we've gone through the book of Judges, through the book of Titus, and currently we are in uh, the series here for Psalms. We've taken um, this 10 weeks on Psalms. We're not going through the entire book because if you know anything about Psalms, it's poems and songs put together. And so it's not really in a narrative form that you can just go through like that. So we've picked 10 of them to go through. I'll be teaching uh, uh, half of them, and then different speakers will be teaching half of them as well. So we're excited for that. I, w- I want you to open up to Psalm 23, and I want to jump right in because of time. Um, so uh, up to this point, we've kind of gone through different types of Psalms. So Psalm 1, uh, we, we did uh, Psalm 13, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, and now we're in Psalm 23. Um, and, and here's the thing about Psalm 23. If you didn't even grow up in church, you're probably in one way or another have heard this psalm, when some big buff dude when you were in prison, he had it tatted on his back or whatever. Um, so somewhere along the line, you've heard this psalm or you know a little bit about that psalm. And so I, I want to open actually up with a quote from my man Charles Spurgeon and talking him talking about this psalm specifically, because this psalm is a, a big deal. And the big thing that I want to answer this morning is why. Why is this psalm such a big deal? Why of all the hu- over 100 psalms, why is this psalm so well known. I mean, matter of fact, going through seminary, uh, a big thing when they give you kind of 10 or 20 uh, different uh, sections of scripture you should memorize as a pastor, this is always in the top five. Why? Why is this psalm such a big deal? I want to answer that question, um, and that will be the whole goal of going through it. But let me read this first from uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, this psalm has charmed more griefs to rest than all philosophy of the world. It has returned to their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has confronted, uh, confronted the noble hosts of the poor. It has sung courage to the army of the disappointed. It has poured healing and consolation to the heart of the sick, of the captives in dungeons, of widows in their uh, pinching griefs, uh, of orphans in their loneliness. It, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my thought here. Uh, dying soldiers have died easier as it was read to them. Ghastly hospitals have been illuminated, and it has visited the prisoner and broken his chains. So Spurgeon's point is it has been there in these moments of, of soldiers dying in hospital beds. It's, it, it's gone out to orphans. It's gone out to widows. It's gone out to broken broken people, and it's been this balm of healing, that this, this ointment of healing that kind of rushed over them to go, yes, why? Why? 
And that, that, that again, is the, the question that I, I want to try to do our best to get into. Why is this psalm such a big deal? So let's start verse 1, chapter 23. If you're not already there, I'm going to read it. It's going to be like a big Bible study. This is how it starts. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. So let's first start with the guy who's writing this psalm. So it's David. And if you don't know anything about David, he's arguably the uh, most powerful king in all of the Old Testament. Okay, so um, he comes from uh, uh, this guy named Jesse. And, and uh, Jesse has a bunch of different sons. But, but David is the youngest and, and apparently the weakest where his other brothers are stronger, wiser, better looking than him. Uh, David has really one goal, one kind of job within his his family and that is to be a shepherd right so he spends most of his high school years taking care of sheep so he knows more than most what it means to call god his shepherd he understands and, and this is important right because um jesus gives this framework where he tells this analogy of there's a hundred of this parable there's a hundred sheep and the shepherd has these hundred sheep and 99 of them stay but one goes off to stray and and it's been uh talked about i read a commentary on that specific parable where it said a shepherd knew his sheep so well so david is with his sheep so often and and and, and, and knows them so well day in day out sleeping with them making sure that he's taking care of them he he, he and he probably i mean if you've ever been around sheep he smells like them it's it's this this whole deal where he's immersed in sheep culture i don't know what that means um okay so so here he is with them and and it's been argued that not only would a shepherd know that one of the sheep is gone that one of the the, the hundred but he would know which sheep shep what is the singular version of sheep okay shepish um okay so he would know which one is gone he like Where's Frederick? I know Frederick is somewhere. Oh my gosh, Frederick is gone. Okay, he would know which one is gone. That, that's how well they knew. So, so David understands that. He, he gets that there's this, I've been with sheep. I know what it's like to care for them. I know what it's like to take care of them. I know what it's like to protect them. And, and there's this overwhelming thing that I want to make sure we get out from the jump of this psalm that David is trying to portray this element that's, that's easy for us to, to, to know ethereally, but really hard to feel. So let me just say it the best I can, that God is our shepherd and he cares about you. He cares about you. I need you to understand most of scripture uses this plural language, but not here. I mean, very rarely do we see this my, me language, but here is David going, no, 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 no. Yes, he's all the sheep shepherd, but at the end of the day, he's my shepherd. He cares about your job. He cares about your spouse. He cares about your kids. He cares about where you run, where you walk, who you hang out with. He cares what happens, how you feel. He cares. He cares. He cares. There's no shepherd that doesn't care. He desperately cares about you. And instead of just going to, to the New Testament to show you all these plethora of verses about how God has intricately involved himself in your life to care at such a high level as a shepherd, let me just read three of, and I'm not over-exaggerating, hundreds Hundreds of verses that talk about God's covenant love for you. When I talk about covenant, I don't mean contractual. So, so, so I mean a very, like, like at a base level, he's saying, no, 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 I don't care how far you go. I care about you. I, I, I don't care what you've done. I care about you. I love you. This covenant love, he, he cares desperately. Just let me just read some of these so, so you can understand, get the undergirding of what David's trying to portray when he says that God is his shepherd. In Zephaniah, there's a book in the Bible called Zephaniah 317. Uh, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you. Oh, he will exalt over you with loud singing. 
walking in the intimacy of that. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God of mercy, uh, of mercy and, uh, and you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Listen to this. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Hear this. To a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. I care. I care. I care. This is, David knows what it means to be a shepherd. He knows what it means to care. And this is what he's saying. God cares. You may feel like he doesn't care, but he cares. And he goes on to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Just really quickly, I think we probably need to make this delineation because of the culture we live in. Wants are not needs. I mean, that may be obvious, right? Our kids may not fully understand that at times. But, but I think more literally, you can say this in the Hebrew, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He's going to take care of you. So the shepherd is taking care. More appropriately, I think even to the the next part in verse 2, he's going to lead us to certain places in showing that care, right? So in verse 2, he says this, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Um, There's been, and you may not be aware of this, but people have tried to like nuance this really deep. I'm not going to try to complicate this. I think he's using imagery here. He's talking about a shepherd with sheep. And even my man Spurgeon took this a weird way. He's like, and the the green pastures is is the Bible and the still waters is the spirit. I'm like, Whatever, dude. Listen, at the end of the day, here's what I think he's saying. He's a shepherd who cares about his sheep, and he takes us to a place that we can lie down, and we can eat, we can be. And then he takes us to still waters, not rushing waters, where, where, where the waves might we- uh, wash us away, or our feet might lose hold. But no, at the end of the day, he's taking care of us. He provides food, he provides uh, a comfort, he provides protection, he provides water. He is taking care of us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he leads me, or uh, yeah, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then he goes on to say this in verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. I, I, would, I would put what he's trying to, you know, unearth here is he, he takes the dryness of my soul, the inner being of who I am. He restores it. So he's stepping out of this imagery language for uh, uh, the shepherd sheep analogy. And he leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, if you've been here from the entirety of all Psalms, the very first time we open up the book of Psalm was Psalm 1. And, and here's the declaration I made that what the book of Psalm does do is it tells us how it is. What it doesn't do is tell you how to walk it out. So, so in that, there's not very many, if at all, any imperatives in the book of Psalms. So nowhere in the book of Psalms is it saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. Rather, it's going, listen, blessed is this type of man. Blessed is this type of man who follows me, who does not walk in the way of the wicked, who does not stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But this man, this wicked man, he's going to feel the weight of what he wants to do. And that may be too absolute for us, too, too set in stone for us. But what the Bible is doing is saying, this is how it is. In this, in this moment, David is saying, as a shepherd, we're moving that Im- imagery, Jesus, well, not Jesus, because he doesn't know who Jesus is yet. We'll get there. Um, uh, a God is leading us in this way of passive righteousness, but he's doing it for his namesake. And this is where we've got to stop. Because the reality is, um, from this point, for his namesake, for his glory, and what he does next is where things are going to get real tricky. Because up to this point, um, I don't think anyone would disagree anything with anything the Bible has said. There's not a lot of contention when we talk about God, God cares about us. Like you didn't need to come to church even to know somewhere along the, the, uh, the line, some dude's going to get up there with red shoes and tell you that God cares about you, right? Like somewhere in there, God is going to desperate. Like, like I know that God cares. I know that he is guiding me. I know that he is protecting me. We, we hold all those to be true. Um, but what happens next is verse four. And what happens in verse four is the tone 
the cadence of, of, of chapter 23 in the book of Psalm, in the Song of Psalms. Now, it's going to change. It's going to begin to turn on a dime here, and it's going to do something really unique. And it's not just in the tone or the language, but you can even hear it in the pronouns. You can even hear in the pronouns. If you don't know what a pronoun is, not to patronize anyone, but we have, right, so if, if I'm uh, going over here, I'm saying Jason is sitting there. I wouldn't continue to say Jason's name. I won't say Jason is sitting there. Jason is sitting in a seat. I'm glad Jason's sitting in service. No, I, I would begin to use he, right? So Jason is sitting there. He's sitting in service. I'm glad he's here. So I'm cha- I've changed it. That's a pronoun, right? But you know, this is English class. But in pronouns, we even have first person, second person, and third person pronouns. Up to this point, we've used the third person pronoun talking about God, meaning, look at your Bible again, verses 2 and 3. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What we've done to this point, if we, we've talked about things we know to be true about God. Here's what we know to be true about God. But suddenly, verse 4 comes into play, and we're not, not going to any longer be talking things about God, but suddenly we're going to be talking to him. What would make the psalmist do this? What causes us to begin to speak about God ethereally? What causes us to make God the philosophy, the theology, the things we know about him suddenly to be stop being out there and to be here? What, what does that? There's really only one thing in life. Pain. Pain. Fear of loss, loss itself, suffering. Like it's so easy for us to talk about God when we're in the green pastures. Like when we, when we put our hands to the brook and we're drinking the water, it's easy to talk about God. But let me tell you how much I've argued about eschatology in a hospital room. Zero times. Never have I ever sat next to someone if they feel like they're going to die or been diagnosed with cancer and go, hey, let me talk to you about your pre-tribulation post-millennialism. I've, I, I've never debated in those moments about uh, where they stand on ontological equality and economic subordination. No, hear me. In those moments, what takes place is we change the way we are talking about God out there, and suddenly we, we begin to, to unorthodoxly, it doesn't matter, I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect prayers, we just go, God. We change our pronouns. It's no longer you, like out there. It's you right here. Because hear me, it's hard to talk about God. It's hard to talk about him in in a far sense when you've lost that family member. It's hard to talk about him when he's not there, when you've lost that job. When someone has betrayed you, when you lost that relationship. It's not easy in those moments. Suddenly, we recognize when, when, when we're in the green, but when we're in the green pastures, when we're drinking the water, we can talk about it. But when we step into this valley that feels like death is here and we're in its shadow, all that comes out with us is God, is prayer. So he, he goes on to say this. After, we know, after knowing everything uh, to, to be true um, in verses 1 through 3, and we believe it. That God cares. He is our shepherd and he cares about us. All that is true. And yet verse 4 takes place. Which it's amazing um, because it's, it's real hard to know verses one, three, 1 through 3 exist when verse 4 does. It's real hard to know verses 1 through 3 that God is who he said he is when verse 4 exists and says this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow, shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Let's break down the first part. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
Um, I only really want to put one nuance here and that, that it's, uh, we recognize immediately that he's not walking to or he's not walking in the valley, but he's walking through. Now, I think this is intentional, right? Because um, for some of us, you're, you're there right now. And I can try to do my best to explain what the valley of the shadow of death is and what it looks like. But if you've been there or are there right now, you don't need a lot of explanation. You know what it's like for the world to crush you so much, you feel like you can't breathe. I don't need to exegete that for you. So if you've been there, or that day is coming, you recognize that in that valley, for whatever reason, David is making a very intentional statement that I'm walking through it. I'm going through this. I'm not going to it. So whether this side of eternity or not, I understand that God is going to take care of me. Because even though I'm not in the valley where it's green, I'm not by the brook where it's still, I'm in this valley. I know he's still my shepherd. Now, th- this, this, um, this can become extremely frustrating, right? Because here's what happens. Um, if God is our shepherd, If God does care about us the way that we just talked about God cares about us, if David knows how much God cares about us, then why? I mean, is that not in those moments of the valley, the shadow of death, the hospital rooms, the loss of life, the the feeling like you can't move anymore? Is not that the only question that matters to you? Why? If he's a good shepherd, then why would he bring you through the valley, the shadow of death? And this is where the Bible is silent. I mean, man, like, it could be because of Genesis 3, the world's just broken. I mean, it could be because of judgment. I mean, we don't know, right? Like, we're left in this, this place where we feel like Job. <laughs> but the results are, are, like, proven. No matter what the reason God has, why in, at any moment he can stop that pain but chooses not to, what pain does to us, what suffering does to us, what fear does to us, what loss does to us, it makes us question everything. It makes us question. It makes us question our theology. It makes us question uh, what we believe. If we believe, it makes us question the God we think we know. It makes us question. It makes us question. And in a lot of ways, this is really, really good for us, right? Uh, because First Peter 1 talks about this being a refiner of our faith. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, um, The Problem of Pain, which on this topic, if you've never read it, I highly suggest. It's actually one of my just top five favorite books by C.S. Lewis in general. And um, he, he, he has a famous quote in there, but there's a second part to the quote that is not as famous. Um, I want to read the first part to you because I think it, it speaks to why the valley of the shadow of death. Um, and this is what he says. We can ignore pleasure. Let me just stop right there. Okay? We can ignore pleasure. Before you read on, just that statement is absolutely true. So let me be just like transparent with you for a second. I feel like in my life I'm in a really good place. Like I got three kids who... Um, they're healthy. Uh, we're on our way. Hopefully, we're going to get to adopt Anna. Like, my wife, we, like, we love Jesus together. Tonight, we get to go on a date, <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, so, like, like, there's this, like, he, he's given us a house, which I don't think is very big, and he's given us land where we get to, like, put gardens in, and I got an above-ground pool. Like, I feel really good about life. And, 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 and there's this thing about all that that can absolutely um, – blind me or deafen me to the reality that is reality that 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 beyond all those things beyond all those comforts he is there and i think c.s lewis's point is so true that that first part we can uh we can ignore pleasure like in pleasure we can ignore all that there is we don't don't have to think about pleasure we just enjoy it but he says this we can ignore pleasure but pain insists upon being attended to god whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience but shouts in our pains it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Like it's his pain, like that moment where, where it's, it, it does something, it wakes us up, 
And hear me, whether you like it or not, this is good for us. And you may in that moment say, well, I don't want that to happen. The, the less part, famous of the quote, and I think this is beautiful in what he says of this. He says, we may wish that we were of so little account to God that he left us alone to follow our natural impulses, that, we, uh, that, we would get over, that he would get over trying to train us into something unlike, so unlike our natural self. So just stop real quick. What he's saying in that moment is we may go, God, I, like, I don't want to learn this lesson. I have my above ground pool. I have my garden. I've got my kids and their health. I'm good. I'm good. We may want it to end there. But, but to C.S. Lewis's point, I love this. In that moment, uh, so unlike our natural selves, we are uh, asking not for more love, but for less. I'm asking for more love, but, but for less. That God cares deeply about us enough. Now check this out, to bring us through the valley of the shadow of death, but he's with us. He's with us. Maybe that's not comforting to you, but, but it is to David as he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now I said David was a, a shepherd boy, right? He's this, this teenage dude who's taking care of sheep. And um, I would argue that the rod and staff is one and the same. It's, it could look like a she, uh, shepherd's crook, right? This kind of candy cane, big candy cane. They walk around in it. And if you have grew up in church, you've probably heard a million analogies on shepherds and blah, blah, blah. But here's what I want to say to you. There are two things definitely to be true when it comes to shepherd and his sheep that uses with this rod and staff. One is for correction. When the sheep are straying, he's knocking them over this way, knocking them over this way. And the other is for protection. So as a matter of fact, David, um, right before he goes to fight Goliath, okay, if you know the story of David and Goliath, right before he goes to fight Goliath, the, the, the other guys in the army are like, no, dude, you're going to get worked, okay? Don't go down into that valley. So he gives a defense about when he was a teenager and how he's a shepherd. And I want you to hear what he says, because this is crazy. This is what he says, talking about when he was a shepherd. When there came a lion or a bear and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Yes. So here's David, right? He knows what it means to have God as a shepherd because he knows what it means to be a shepherd with his rod, his staff here. And when a bear comes, a bear, okay? When a bear comes, he goes to the bear, he rescues the sheep. But if the bear persists, he grabs the bear. We're talking about a bear. I was just, uh, we just had dinner with the Beemans, and, and he said there's a whole book on how bears, um, the story on how these bears have killed people. And one of the stories is how a bear just knocks the guy's head clean off, okay? A bear! He grabs a bear by his beard and punches him in his face, okay? And he says, get out of here, okay? Sure, David, that's what happened, okay? So, so David knows this. He knows what, it, what it's like to have this rod of protection there to protect him. As he says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So for whatever it's worth, whatever pain we sit in now, whatever pain we hope to get out of on this side of eternity or the next, the reality is that God is making this declaration as a shepherd. He's with us. He's with us. He goes on to say in verse 5, he steps out of this, this imagery now. So we saw, if you can look at your Bibles again, verses 1 and 2 were this shepherd-sheep language, right, this imagery. Verse 3, he steps out of it to explain some of it. In verse 4, uh, the, again, there, in verse, all of verse 4, there's this shepherd imagery. And then verse 5, he steps out of it again. And he says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So let's just explain this real quick. Because here's the reality. If there's one theme in David's life, it's that everybody hates him. Okay, so here's here's the story of David. It's not just that his brothers hate him, and then he's he's set to be king. But this guy named Saul um, ends 
up being king before him, and he's supposed to transfer the throne uh, over to David, but he doesn't. He wants the throne because he hears the masses saying, Saul killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. So David flees, and then his son comes at him over and over and over, and here's the declaration of all of David's enemies. Where is your God? If he's real, then why have you lost your job? If he is real, then why did your son die? Why is that family member gone? Why? 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 Where is he, David? Where is he? This is the declaration. And David says, listen, I don't have all the answers, but here's what I know. Literally in Hebrew, it says, I got a spread one day. God will put a spread before me, and it's going to be in the presence of those very people who said why. And I promise you, he will vindicate me. He will show and prove himself to be real, that I have made the right choice in following him. He goes on to make this declaration, not only that, but uh, you anoint my head with oil, which is always a sign of like divine favor, prosperity, and joy. And he says, my cup overflows, that, that he will be taken care of. He will be taken care of. He will be taken care of. I want to stop in this uh, real quick. And um, what we're going to do, just so you know, is when I'm done here, someone's going to come up and lead us in our time of response, and we're going to sing. Now, maybe um, if you're used to church, usually after the sermon, we sing one song. We probably sneak out during that song. But we actually have a very intentional time uh, where we take communion together, and we have a, a longer version of, of worship at the end. And, and we're going to sing two songs. And um, I told Stephen, I love that we chose these two songs. And I'm going to actually read both of those songs in a minute. But I want to read the first one to you right now because I think verse 5 speaks immensely to this fact. So the very last song we're going to sing um, is called House of Zion. I've got to find Carolina's music here. Um, she, of course, put it all in order and stuff. Okay, so we will feast in the house of Zion. I want you to hear the song that we're going to sing because this is important, right? Um, some of you right now, it's been within a year that you've lost that family member or like, or, or like your family member has been diagnosed with cancer or next week, death is coming. You understand? Like you get that, right? Like that pain is coming. Like, like the valley of the shadow of death is only going to be a valley for a while. It's coming. Ain't nobody walking out of here knowing they're not going to die one day. And unfortunately to us, some of us will lose someone at the same age as us, someone younger than us. It's coming for us. That is true. That's inescapable. And so we're, we're going to sing this song at the very end that, um, that I love the tempo of it because it's very like, you know, you know, Josh and Stephen, like everything's got to be depressing. It's like a neo-reform thing. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, so it's going to have this tempo, right, that feels like, and, it, and, and I love because the, the tempo of the song, this uh, uh, We Will Feast in the House of Zion is how we feel, but we still make a declaration in it. Here's what it says, and I've, I've told you, I've sing this song, well, I'm not going to sing it now, but um, I've told you the song before so we can understand. It says this, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. The house of Zion is always where the people are. The people of God are. Wherever they are, that's the house of Zion. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. We will not be burned by the fire. He is the Lord our God. We are not consumed by the flood, upheld, protected, and gathered up. In the dark of night before the dawn, my soul be not afraid. For promise morning, oh how long, O oh God of Jacob, be my strength. Every vow we've broken and betrayed, you are the faithful one. And from the garden to the grave, bind us together bring shalom. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. This is what he's trying to declare. And it's not just in the fact that one day God will make a spread, but verse six is how we capstone all of this. Verse six is how we finish this entire Psalm. And I think by the power of the Holy Spirit and David, he does it very intentionally because verse six is not just throw away. It's not just okay, done, but hear me. He declares something both in the present and the future. When he says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, so um, the great apologetic of the atheists of the day is if God is all-powerful, if he can, can do all things, and he is all-loving, then why is there suffering? Why is there pain? And a Christian looks at that same exact thing and goes, because God is all-powerful, and because he is good, I know he is with me in my suffering, which is eons beyond absolutely different from the way that the world would contemplate or begin to revel within what is pain. This is where James 2, Romans 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 4 tell us over and over as Christians, you need to look at pain differently. You need to view this because here's the truth. Though you may lose your job, goodness and mercy are following you. Though you may get the the promotion and, and make more money, goodness and mercy, it's not about the promotion. Though there's the loss of child, the loss of grandparent, the loss of parent, the loss of brother, the loss of sister, hear me, goodness and mercy are with you. But even if they have a long life and you get to see your great, great grandkids, it's still about grace and mercy. It's about his love. May we not get lost in all of this. It is following you. It is following you. It is with you. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because at the end of the day, he makes a declaration. Though you are in the shadow of death right now in this valley, You'll spend all of eternity in the house of the Lord. So right now, you may be in depression. And next week, we're going to talk about depression, anxiety. You may feel that right now, right? Like it, like it, um, I've never been through it. And um, my wife has, and there's been moments where I just don't know what to do. And the only hope we have is like, it's not always going to be like this. And David knows this because he's a good shepherd. He's with us. He'll take care of us. He'll carry us on. His love is so never-ending, so unbound. He cares, he cares, he cares. Hear me, that's why this psalm is so powerful. That's why this psalm is so powerful. And, and I think we have forgotten its power. I, I, I think um, this truth, um, let me, so, so my kids in the grocery store, um, when we're, we're walking through the grocery store, they're kind of waddling around, right? They're not really paying attention and like a good dad, cause I'm hilarious. If, if they're kind of way back there, um, I'll turn the corner without them and watch them. Right. And, and though Eve, who's three years old, um, has been like in this shelter, I know my mom and dad are with me. The moment she realizes that her dad and mom are gone, she loses her mind. Right. Okay. Because suddenly I'm in the grocery store. I don't know where my parents are. Oh my gosh, I'm going to die, right? And there's this, there's this fear, that, that, that feeling, right? It, it's the same way um, my son, uh, Corbin, who's eight years old, right next to us is a, a skate park. And this guy put a skate park in his front yard. And so he's all into skating or whatever. Well, our, our mailbox is about eight houses down. So we go to check the mail, myself, Candace, uh, Titus, and Eve, the rest of our family. And when we come back, Corbin is out front crying, right? Like, well, you should come now, right? Okay. He's out crying because... Uh, he thought his family had left him. I'm always like, I'm always wondering with my kids, like, when have we ever left you, right? Okay, um, but, but he thought his family left him, and the house is open. It's not like he couldn't go inside, but there's this suddenly, when it, when it, when it comes to it, uh, oh my gosh, right? And, and, and hear me, this is a big deal. You have that. Your family members, your neighbors, your friends don't. And they may feel like they can beat their chest. They have the swag, the bravado, the face to put it on like, no, everything's okay. But when they're left alone, when that day comes for them, they're shepherdless. They're in the valley and they feel like I'm lost. 
And it is in this moment that Psalm 23 for God's children is so comforting. It is the reason that the soldier can breathe easy as he breathes his last breath, that I know I have a shepherd, that I will be in his house forever. And not everyone has that. And my prayer is not one that we would recognize that not just we have this, that we are comforted by these words, but two, we would continue to share with those who don't. This is a a big deal. So um, I want to read something out of uh, uh, John. Now, here's the truth. Um, as, as, as we know, we, we can look in this, this valley of the shadow of death and we can recognize that um, God is with us, he cares about us, but he doesn't know what it's like to feel what I'm feeling. And what's crazy about God and his covenant steadfast love is he does. So he ends up becoming man. We know this to be true in the New Testament. As he becomes man, I can't say this for sure, but Jesus, who is God in the flesh, I can't say this absolutely, but I would argue for, knows Psalm 23 well and makes this declaration in John chapter 10. He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. His, his imagery here is, no, 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 hear me. I'm the good shepherd and I have my flock here. And when a wolf comes, a coyote comes, a bear comes, I will stand in front of the sheep. I will give my life for the sheep. I will protect the sheep. I am there giving myself for the sheep. But somebody who's not, like I'm sick on Thursday and I hire somebody and somebody comes in, right? And, and they're taking care of the sheep. When the wolf comes, they don't care. And that's what they feel, that this, this lie, whoever has told them, whatever uh, consumeristic ideals they've bought into, they will let them down. They will feel the weight of the valley of the shadow of death. But Jesus has said, no, no, I am the good shepherd. I will give myself for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. This is good news. That we can, in our moments, not just know that God is our shepherd, but very tangibly, our shepherd, Jesus, came and experienced the valley of the shadow of death. He's a faithful high priest. As Judas betrays him, his friends leave him. Lazarus, his buddy, dies. He knows the weight. He knows the weight. He's felt it. He's been there. He's a faithful high priest, according to Hebrews 4 and 5. So, um... We're going to stand in a minute, but we're going to sing a song before we sing that house, um, uh, uh, the We Will Feast in the House of Zion song. I want to read something that I have told Josh. It's the most poetic song we sing. Normally, I wouldn't share what songs we're going to sing, but I was singing them first service. I was like, holy cow, these are amazing. Um, and we're going to sing called The Love of God, this song called The Love of God. And there's a part in the second verse that I want you to hear that's so poetic and amazing that speaks to Jesus giving his life. This is what it says, okay? And I'm going to have to do a little explaining because we sing it. And I don't even know fully, like, the poetry we're singing. Okay, could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? So the first declaration is, imagine if all the oceans were filled with ink and all the skies were paper to write on. Okay, with that imagery in mind, were every stock a earthen quill and every man a scribe by trade? So now I want you to take every stock of every plant and pretend it's a pen. 
more appropriately, a quill. If you don't know what a quill is, you dip it into ink and write, okay? Take this quill. And every single person who's ever been born is a scribe by trade. He knows how to write. So imagine all of the oceans are ink. All the skies are paper. Every single plant, every stalk of grain is a, is a pen. And every single person in the world is a scribe. Imagine that if you can. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans all dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though it be stretched from sky to sky. This love is big. And you may not feel it. You may feel lost in it. You may feel like he's not there, but it is big. And he cares and he is your shepherd. May we know that to be true. Let's stand to our feet real quick.